Today is December 1st, 2020, and this is episode number 34 of Blurred Laws in Life. With me, your host, Richard Bush. In last week's episode of Blurred Laws in Life, as those of you who listened will not forget, we had on the show my friend, Polo de Don. And Polo, during the show, said that Donald Trump is the greatest white man of all time. That was his quote. Donald Trump is the greatest white man of all time. So I decided to ask Polo and bring to his attention other potentially great white men in history, including Moses, Jesus Christ, Einstein, Edison, and many more. Polo stuck to his guns and said that with respect to all white men who've ever lived, Donald Trump is the greatest. As part of that discussion, I asked Polo about Jonas Salk. And I stated that Jonas Salk invented penicillin. Well, as all of you in Blurred Laws and Lifeland know, the most educated audience in the history of audiences, there are no greater audiences than the audience that listens to Blurred Laws and Life every week. The greatest in history, I would say. You all know that, of course, Believe it or not, I made a mistake, and it's time for me to go into Correction Corner. Jonas Salk did not invent penicillin. In fact, Jonas Salk instead, no less important, created the vaccine that cured polio. Now, as I'm sure all of you know, polio was at one time considered the most serious public health problem in the world. And during the 1940s and 1950s, it has been reported that Americans feared next to the atomic bomb getting polio. In fact, in 1952, there was an epidemic in which more than 3,000 people died and 21,000 or more were left with some form of paralysis. Most of the victims were children. And of course, Franklin D. Roosevelt, the president of the United States during World War II, was a victim of polio himself. And uh, Jonas Salk created the polio vaccine. It was first announced on April 12, 1955. And Salk was immediately hailed as a quote-unquote miracle worker and was at that time probably the most famous American in the United States of America. So I guess that does leave open the question, who in fact did invent penicillin, since we're on the subject, and so that I do not get angry hate mail messages from the Scottish listeners of Blurred Laws in Life, or the family of Sir Alexander Fleming, I will report now that it was in fact, and I apologize to the Fleming family, and I apologize to all of you who have Scottish heritage out in Blurred Laws and Lifeland, but it was actually Sir Alexander Fleming, a Scottish physician and microbiologist, who 
created and invented the first effective antibiotic substance, which he named penicillin. So he's the creator credited with creating the first antibiotic, which of course, as we know today, um, cures many diseases and problems. Antibiotics are prescribed for just about everything that um, we are afflicted with. And it is Sir Alexander Fleming who is credited with inventing penicillin. And since we're on the subject of curing diseases and the great microbiologists in history, no discussion would be complete, of course, without mentioning Louis Pasteur. Louis Pasteur was, of course, a French biologist, microbiologist, and chemist, renowned for his discoveries of the principles of vaccination, fermentation, and pasteurization. He's remembered for his remarkable breakthroughs in the causes and prevention of diseases, and his discoveries have saved many lives ever since. He reduced mortality from purpural fever and created the first vaccines for rabies and anthrax. Of course, he is best known in the processes named after him for his invention of the techniques of treating milk and wine, pasteurization, to stop bacterial contamination. He is regarded, in fact, as one of the three main founders of bacteriology and is particularly known as the father of microbiology. So I think everyone who has come after Louis Pasteur owes something, is standing on the shoulders of Louis Pasteur. And since we were on the discussion of these great scientists, I decided to wrap it up all neatly with a bow by discussing Louis Pasteur and getting it straight what he did as opposed to, of course, Mr. Salk and Mr. Fleming. So now that we have that correction behind us, it is time to move on to episode number 34 of Blurred Laws and Life. In this episode of Blurred Laws in Life, episode number 34, there are two cases that I think you will find very interesting, the second of which is something that is almost hard to believe, but it is an indictment of today's world in which we live, quite frankly, and it would be seriously funny if it were not so sad. And as the judge in the case said, you can't make this up. Truth is oftentimes stranger than fiction. So stay tuned for the second case that I'll be discussing. The reason I am addressing the first case that I am discussing today is because it has become apparent to me that we are living our lives in an Orwellian nightmare. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with George Orwell's work, 1984, much like Louis Pasteur, based on his work, was celebrated with the word pasteurized to describe the process of 
making sure milk and dairy products do not spoil. George Orwell's work generated the name Orwellian. And what does it mean to live in an Orwellian society? According to Wikipedia, Orwellian is an adjective describing a situation, idea, or societal condition that George Orwell identified as being destructive to the welfare of a free and open society. It denotes an attitude and a brutal policy of draconian government control by propaganda, surveillance, disinformation, denial of truth, doublethink, and manipulation of the past and current events. I have often thought that we now live clearly in an Orwellian society. Many of you may have read the book 1984. It was required reading um, when I was in junior high school. And one of the portions of the book that has always stood out to me is a scene in which the government is rallying people at a rally for their enemy, Oceania's enemy. The, there were three countries in, that were controlling the, the world in 1984, Oceania, Eurasia, and East Asia. And in this particular scene, the government is rallying people by saying that Eurasia or East Asia, I can't remember which one, was their mortal enemy and we had to kill, uh, let's say, Eurasia. And they were just rallying the people and getting them into a fervor. And everyone was chanting, we must kill Eurasia, we must kill Eurasia. And then someone comes into the speaker's ear, whispers something in his ear, something along the lines of that we now, Eurasia is now our friend and we hate East Asia. And without skipping a beat, the person at this rally changes in mid-sentence and says that East Asia is our enemy and now Eurasia is our friend. And everyone just continues without skipping a beat saying, Yes, let's kill East Asia. We must kill East Asia. The distortion of facts, propaganda, misinformation, and as we call it in today's modern speak, fake news has become all too prevalent and is being embraced by the population many times without really any examination of the actual facts. So... Why do I bring this up? I bring this up because following the presidential election, it has been a common refrain of President Trump and those working for him that the election was the result of massive fraud on a breathtaking level. That fraud has resulted in President-elect Biden being elected president and that the ballots that were counted were fraudulent. And we have heard this common refrain day and night since the election. We hear the news media say that there is no basis for this and that there are no facts supporting it. 
And of course, uh, most people don't trust the media, so they disregard what the media says. So what I decided to do, what I thought would be interesting, was to actually read some of the decisions and the facts actually being raised in court to see whether President Trump's campaign and his attorneys are raising fraud and have produced evidence of fraud or whether this is just doublespeak meant to brainwash the citizens of this country into believing that Joe Biden won this election through fraud. The only way to do that is to see what the lawyers for Donald Trump actually raised and what proof they set forth in these cases. So I read the cases and one in particular stands out. Um, as we all know that one of the challenges that are being that is being made is in Pennsylvania. And it was reported that Rudy Giuliani, once the most powerful prosecutor, U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, appeared in court in Pennsylvania to make the case for the Trump campaign that there was fraud throughout Pennsylvania and that fraudulent votes were being counted. So I decided to read this 21-page decision of the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, which is the court in federal court right below the United States Supreme Court that covers Pennsylvania and a few other states in the Northeast to see what exactly was being raised and what facts were set forth to see if the Trump campaign is just engaging in Orwellian doublespeak and misinformation to try to poison the minds of the people of this country or whether they actually have facts to support this idea that the election was based on fraud. So the decision of the Third Circuit Court of Appeals begins with some great language. It begins, quote, free, fair elections are the lifeblood of our democracy. Charges of unfairness are serious, but calling an election unfair does not make it so. Charges require specific allegations and then proof. We have neither here, end quote. And here is really crucial language based on what I just discussed about this Orwellian society, this attempt to pollute our minds that seems to occur on a daily basis at the tip of a finger or at the tip of a keystroke, I should say, that generates tweets. The decision says, the Trump presidential campaign asserts that Pennsylvania's 2020 election was unfair. But as lawyer Rudolph Giuliani stressed, the campaign, quote, and this is from the brief that was submitted by the Trump campaign, doesn't plead fraud. This is not a fraud case. Instead, it objects that Pennsylvania's Secretary of State and some counties restricted poll watchers and let voters fix technical defects in their mail-in ballots. It offers nothing more. So despite hearing over and over and over in the news that Joe Biden is not legitimate because of massive fraud, Rudolph Giuliani, the lawyer for the Trump campaign, 
buried into his brief, which was then exposed by this court, that the campaign doesn't plead fraud. This is not a fraud case. The court went on to say that Pennsylvania law is willing to overlook many technical defects. It favors counting votes as long as there is no fraud. Indeed, the campaign has already litigated and lost many of these issues in state courts. The campaign tries to repackage these state law claims as unconstitutional discrimination, yet its allegations are vague and conclusory. It never alleges that anyone treated the Trump campaign or Trump voters worse than it treated the Biden campaign or Biden voters. And federal law does not require poll watchers or specify how they may observe. The court said the campaign's claims have no merit. The number of ballots it specifically challenges is far smaller than the roughly 81,000 vote margin of victory. And it never claims fraud or that any votes were cast by illegal voters. Plus, Tossing out millions of mail-in ballots would be drastic and unprecedented, disenfranchising a huge swath of the electorate and upsetting all down-ballot races too. That remedy would be grossly disproportionate to the procedural challenges raised. Now, with respect to the specific allegations that are made in the Pennsylvania case, which were rejected by this court and by the lower court, the district court, the Court of Appeals noted that counties have control over poll watchers and representatives. The election code does not tell counties how they must accommodate them. Counties need only allow them in polling places or in the room where ballots are being inspected. Counties are expected to set up an enclosed space for vote counters at the polling place, and poll watchers shall remain outside the enclosed space. So the counties decide where the watchers stand and how close they get to the vote counters. With respect to the mail-in ballots, the Court of Appeals noted that for decades, Pennsylvania let only certain people, like members of the military and their families, vote by mail. But last year, as part of a bipartisan election reform, Pennsylvania expanded mail-in voting. Now any Pennsylvania voter can vote by mail for any reason. And here's the important part of that. To vote by mail, a Pennsylvania voter must take several steps. First, he or she must ask the state or his county for a mail-in ballot. To do that, he or she must submit a signed application with their name, date of birth, address, and other information. They must also provide a driver's license number, the last four digits of his or her social security number, or the like. Once the application is correct and complete, the county will approve it. Close to the election, the county will mail the voter a mail-in ballot package. The package has a ballot and two envelopes. The smaller envelope, also called the secrecy envelope, is stamped official election ballot. The larger envelope is stamped with the county board of elections name and address and bears a printed voter declaration. Next, the voter fills out the ballot. He or she then folds the ballot, puts it into the first smaller secrecy envelope, and seals it. After that, he puts the secrecy envelope inside the larger envelope and seals that too. Then he or she must also fill out, date, and sign the declaration printed on the outside of the larger envelope. Once the voter assembles the ballot package, he or she then mails it back or delivers it in person. The court noted that not every voter can be expected to follow this process perfectly. 
Some forget one of the envelopes, others forget to sign on the dotted line. Some major errors will invalidate a ballot. For instance, counties may not count mail-in ballots that lack secrecy envelopes. But the election code says nothing about what should happen if a county notices these errors before election day. Some counties stay silent and do not count the ballots. Others contact the voters and give them a chance to correct their errors. The Trump campaign complained the counties identified defective mail-in ballots early and told voters how to fix them. Second, they allege or complain that Pennsylvania kept poll watchers and representatives from watching officials count all ballots. In then analyzing those two claims, the court once again began by saying that it's important to note what Trump campaign does not allege, fraud. Indeed, again, in oral argument before the district court, campaign lawyer Rudy Giuliani conceded that the campaign doesn't plead fraud. He reiterated, quote, if we had alleged fraud, yes, but this is not a fraud case. The Court of Appeals then said, as far as the correction of ballots or the counting of ballots that did not meet the technical requirements of the code specifically but were harmless, that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court had already ruled against the campaign in an earlier case holding, quote, the election code does not require boards of elections to disqualify mail-in or absentee ballots submitted by qualified electors who sign the declaration on their ballot's outer envelope but do not handwrite their name, their address, and or date where no fraud or irregularity has been alleged. As far as the claim that the poll watchers were not close enough, the court said, Nothing in the due process clause requires having poll watchers or representatives, let alone watchers from outside a county or less than 18 feet away from the nearest table. The campaign cites no authority for those propositions, and we know of none. The court also noted that the campaign litigated and lost that claim under state law too. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court held that the election code requires only that poll watchers be in the room, not that they be within a specific distance of the ballots. The court said that the campaign never pleads that any defendant treated the Trump and Biden campaign or those votes for one or the other differently, which kills their Equal Protection Clause claim. The court then went on to say that the relief sought throwing out millions of votes is unprecedented. The court said that the Second Amendment complaint seeks breathtaking relief, barring the Commonwealth from certifying its results or else declaring the election results defective and ordering the Pennsylvania General Assembly, not the voters, to choose Pennsylvania's presidential electors. It cites no authority for this drastic remedy. Lastly, the court held that the public interest favors counting all lawful voters' votes. The court said that relief here would not serve the public interest. Democracy depends on counting all lawful votes promptly and finally, not setting them aside without weighty proof. The public must have confidence that our government honors and respects their votes. What is more, throwing out those votes would conflict with Pennsylvania election law. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court has long liberally construed its election code to protect voters' right to vote, even when a ballot violates a technical requirement. Technicalities, the court said, should not be used to make the right of the voter insecure. Thus, unless there is evidence of fraud, Pennsylvania law overlooks small ballot glitches and respects the expressed intent of every lawful voter. Voters, not lawyers, according to the court, choose the president. 
ballots, not briefs, decide elections. No federal law requires poll watchers or specifies where they must live or how close they must stand when votes are counted. Nor does federal law govern whether to count ballots with minor state law defects or let voters cure those defects. Those are all issues of state law, not ones that we can hear, and earlier lawsuits have rejected those claims. The campaign never alleges that any ballot was fraudulent or cast by an illegal voter. It never alleges that any defendant treated the Trump campaign or its votes worse than it treated the Biden campaign or its votes. Calling something discrimination does not make it so, and there is no basis to grant the unprecedented injunction sought here. I thought it was very important to go through this case in detail because whenever you turn on the news these days, whenever you open your iPad or turn on your laptop, there will inevitably be some article, some talking head, some lawyer discussing or claiming that the ballots cast in this election were fraudulent, that many were fraudulent. But saying so doesn't make it so. And it is quite frankly poisonous to our country, the greatest country in the world. The United States of America is, with all our flaws, the greatest country in the world. You can rise from nothing to be the president of the United States, unlike most other countries on this planet. You can be pretty much whatever you and your talent and your hard work lets you be. And fake news, using today's vernacular, or disinformation, or creating a dystopian society of doublespeak and misinformation to poison the minds of the citizens of this country is in fact the greatest threat to this democracy. So I hate to get serious on blurred laws in life. Usually I like to keep things light, but there is nothing more important in the news, nothing more important from a legal perspective than what is going on right now in the courts, in this country, with these claims that, as far as I can see, are entirely baseless and are simply an attempt to poison the minds of the people of this country into believing that President Biden is not legitimate and even though they have zero chance of success, perhaps making sure that for years from now they will have a rallying cry to undo the alleged injustice that was a result of this election. But the facts show otherwise, and when put to the test, those supporting this idea that this was an unfair and fraudulent election have not been able to come up with any facts whatsoever that I can see or the courts can see to support it. Before I go on to the next case that I want to discuss that, as I mentioned, proves that truth is stranger than fiction, I do have to ask once again the question that I've asked rhetorically both last week and earlier in this episode of Blurred Laws in Life. What has happened to Rudy Giuliani? 
Rudy Giuliani, as I mentioned, was the most powerful United States attorney that the Southern District of New York probably ever had. He took on the mob. After 9-11, he literally became America's mayor. There was talk that he would have been a serious candidate for president of the United States in 2004, had Bush lost the election in 2000, and the Democrats were in control of the White House. By 2008, when he ultimately did run, the luster had worn off and, and his time had passed a little, but he was still a very well-respected figure. But now he literally comes across as being crazy. The press conference he gave in Pennsylvania with black dye dripping down his face, the wide-eyed diatribes that he has been engaging in, and of course, if you've seen Borat too, he let himself get tricked into being in a very compromising and embarrassing situation. So I quite frankly have never seen anything like that as far as a downfall from one of the most respected people in this country to where he is now. And I'm not really sure what else to say about it, except that I felt like I'm blurred laws in life when we're talking about court cases and the fact that he has been condemned by the legal field for his presentation and for his behavior. Um, I have quite frankly never seen anything like it. Now, on to the next case that I want to discuss on this episode number 34 of Blurred Laws and Life. As reported in the news just yesterday, a U.S. judge has sentenced a former high-ranking Honolulu prosecutor to 13 years in prison and her retired police chief husband to seven years, saying that she stole money from her own grandmother and then used her husband's law enforcement power to frame her uncle for a crime he did not commit, all to maintain the couple's lavish lifestyle. As reported in the media, Catherine and Louis Kaloa were once a respected power couple. The United States District Judge overseeing the case said that the case has, quote, staggered the community in many ways. In the decision sentencing these two to prison sentences, the judge described how Catherine Kaloa orchestrated a reverse mortgage scheme that forced her grandmother to sell her home, framed her uncle for stealing the Kaloha's home mailbox, stole money from children whose trusts she controlled as a lawyer, cheated her uncle out of his life savings, convinced her firefighter lover to lie about their affair, and used her position as a prosecutor to turn a drug investigation away from her doctor brother. That's some rap sheet. 
As the district judge said, quote, truth can be stranger than fiction at Catherine Kaloa's sentencing. As far as her husband was concerned, the chief of police, the judge told Louis Kaloa that while his wife was the mastermind, you, Louis, did master the frame job that followed and the scheme couldn't have succeeded without the Honolulu Police Department. The judge went on to say, quote, think about that. The chief of police of one of the largest police departments in the country swears to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and lies, the judge said, of Louis Kaloa's false testimony at the trial of his wife's uncle for stealing the couple's mailbox. Catherine Kaloa, also this former prosecutor, also pleaded guilty to an identity theft charge, saying she got an officer to forge a police report she used to explain negative information on a credit report. She also pleaded guilty to a charge that involved protecting her brother from a drug investigation. In a letter to the judge, she blamed a prescription drug addiction for clouding her judgment. That's more than clouding judgment. While Kaloa apparently apologized to her family in court and asked for forgiveness, Kaloa's aunt read a letter she said her 100-year-old mother, Florence Poigna, wrote before she died in February about her granddaughter's, quote, ruthless scheme, end quote. She wrote, I was 90 years old in 2009 when I agreed to a reverse mortgage on my home, not really understanding what it meant. It seemed complicated, yet I trusted you, Catherine, the letter said. Kaloa came to her grandmother with an idea about taking out a reverse mortgage on her grandmother's home to help buy a condo her uncle wanted. Kaloa said she would consolidate her debts and promised her uncle and grandmother that she would pay off the loan. She then used the money to buy her uncle's condo, but instead of paying off the loan, she spent the money on luxuries, including $26,000 for an induction banquet when her husband became police chief and $10,000 on Mercedes-Benz and Maserati car payments, the judge said. The federal prosecutor in this case said, quote, she perverted justice and she did so for her own personal reasons to facilitate a lifestyle and a facade and an image in the community. You can't make this stuff up, but Miss Kalua will now have 13 years in prison to think about how she defrauded her own grandmother and framed her uncle for a crime he did not commit and the other things just described. Again, as the judge said, truth is stranger than fiction. But I think this case also is an example of the depth that people in our community will sink to. Why did I decide to bring this case to the attention of our audience on Blurred Laws in Life? Simple. This past year, I think our eyes have been open to the fact that public officials often do engage in wrongdoing. From George Floyd to the other incidents we've discussed on Blurred Laws in Life. And oftentimes, officials or those in power tend to give public officials the benefit of the doubt. But this story is a further example 
that those in power often abuse that power, and in this case, in a shocking way. And this is just a reminder that public officials are no better than others, are prone to engaging in wrongdoing and have to be held responsible, of course, just like everyone else. So I hope you enjoyed this episode number 34 of Blurred Laws in Life. I was happy to be able to correct my massive mistake, falsely crediting Jonas Salk with the invention of penicillin. While he did not do that, of course, he did invent something just as significant, the cure for polio. And I hope you also enjoyed my discussion of this Orwellian society of disinformation and false fake news that we tend to live in today and the analysis of the Pennsylvania court decision essentially ridiculing the Trump campaign for raising issues that had no legal merit when on a daily basis they are claiming fraud in the election which they were not even raising in Pennsylvania at all. And it bears mentioning, of course, that just today, the Attorney General of the United States of America, a man appointed by Donald Trump to head the Justice Department, Attorney General Barr, came out officially and said the Justice Department United States Justice Department, after doing a thorough investigation, has not found any evidence of voter fraud that would change the outcome of the vote. As the media is reporting, Barr's comments in an interview with the Associated Press represented an especially public retreat from Trump's repeated claims of voter fraud by one of the president's closest allies in the administration. Attorney General Barr said federal prosecutors and the FBI had reviewed specific complaints, but they have un uncovered no evidence that would change the outcome of the election. This is obviously the most important subject for blurred laws in life to address because the attempt to blur the laws of this country and to label the election as fraudulent when there is no evidence of it simply cannot go unchallenged. And as a cherry on the top of this Orwellian claim of fraud in the election, it appears that Georgian Republicans are begging the Republican Party to distance themselves from those claims of fraud that are being made by the Trump campaign. Also, just today, an official in the office of Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger delivered a passionate speech against those in the GOP, the Republican Party, who have stood by and said nothing as President Trump has made claims about 
fraud in the election. Those claims of fraud in the election have, according to um, Georgian Republicans, sparked death threats against Raffensperger and his family, as well as against rank-and-file election workers. The office of the Republican Secretary of State said, quote, Mr. President, you have not condemned these actions or this language. Senators, you have not condemned this language or these actions. This has to stop. We need you to step up, and if you're going to take a position of leadership, show some, end quote. He went on to say, the backbone of democracy, and all of you have not said a damn word, are complicit in this. I can't begin to explain the level of anger I have right now over this. And every American, every Georgian, Republican and Democrat alike, should have that same level of anger. President Trump had labeled Raffensperger a, quote, enemy of the people in remarks on Thanksgiving Day because he refused to bow to Trump's demand that the Georgian election results be thrown out so that he can be declared the winner in the state. That phrase, enemy of the people, it was noted, has a long and bloody history, having been used by dictators and totalitarian regimes in Russia and China to dehumanize groups of people who were then slaughtered. The spokesman for the Secretary of State concluded by saying, Somebody's going to get hurt, somebody's going to get shot, somebody's going to get killed, and it's not right. It is simply not an exaggeration to say that given the passions that are involved in this case, these repeated claims of fraud, which have no support in the facts, are not only dangerous to this country and democracy, which places complete trust in the vote of our elected officials, but may very well lead to violence by those who believe at face value this disinformation that's being thrown at them on a daily basis. So I hope you've had a good week so far. I hope you have a good next week. And I look forward to speaking to you next week at the usual time with episode number 35 of Blurred Laws and Life.